On today's episode, we have Carl Reader. Carl Reader is the author of Boss It, a book published with Kogan Page, talking to us all about business, finance, and how you can become your own boss. Am I correct to say that's what the premise is? Absolutely right. Yes, Sonia. So thank you so much for inviting me to the podcast. I mean, thank you for saying yes in your busy schedule. It's not too bad. It's not too bad at all. At the moment, I feel like I'm on a podcast circuit. So interviews, morning, noon, and night at the moment. So of course, I'll say yes to you, Sonia. Oh, thank you. You know, I read on Twitter this morning. Someone tweeted. Um, uh, basically, the tweet said, "Can you come on my podcast?" Is the new "Can we connect for coffee?" <laughs> That's just how you have conversations, and then you record them whilst you're having them. Oh, it really is. And it's, I, I think the new virtual world has really opened up some massive opportunities. You know, for example, I was keynoting three different conferences about two weeks ago on three different continents, followed by an interview on a fourth, which is just mind-blowing when you think that pre-COVID, we wouldn't have even thought about doing these as video calls or um, online recordings. We'd have jumped on a plane and spent hours after hours just traveling as dead time. I completely agree with you. I don't know, I always say this, but it's extremely interesting how the same forums, conferences, or even companies a year ago were like, we will never do this. And the industry's changed so rapidly, so quickly. And you have to give them brownie points for adapting. The only thing that I would question, and I'd love to bring this into the discussion, is one, speaker budgets. So I've actually had companies come back with no speaker budgets because you know, we're not traveling. Um, And two, the lack of traveling, because sometimes I found that I was able to see a new country or a new town at least. Definitely. And both points are very valid points. So from a speaking perspective, I've uh, through lockdown, in fact, I've seen the good, the bad and the ugly. Um, So when lockdown kicked in and we were first told that we were going to be um, sat at home doing not very much, I had to cancel probably eight or nine bookings um, through March and April. We obviously had no idea how long this was going to go on for. And one organiser was amazing. So they actually cancelled early March. It was a conference early March. They still paid my fee. They allowed me to present at the exhibition hall, which was now empty. So I did a pre-record, which they then virtualized, And... Do you know what? They did things properly. They did it in the right way. Clearly, they took a financial hit by doing the right thing before lockdown. I had others that um, didn't fulfill their contracts. In fact, one company's gone bust. Um, I've seen all different examples of how businesses have acted. And now, more than ever, I'm seeing people believing that just because a presentation or a keynote or um, or whatever it is you're doing, just because it's virtualized – that there's not as much value to it. But you're right as well, Sonia. So not only does the travel allow you to see new places. I mean, unfortunately, I don't typically get too much time to see the new places. Um, Most airports and conference centres look the same wherever you are in the world. Um, But I find that there has been a challenge in speaking, the difference between speaking internationally or even speaking just a couple of hours away is that you get some travel time to prepare for the event and make sure that you're in the right place for it uh, mentally. But 
nowadays we can have events hour after hour in our diary with no breathing space or preparation space in between. So traveling actually provides us with an opportunity to um, have some enforced space in our diary to um, get some stuff done. I'm so glad you've you've brought that point up. Um, I am victim of exactly that. I find myself waking up, checking my phone um, at like 7am and then being online till like 9pm and actively have to reminding myself or sorry, actively having to remind myself to get up and go for a walk or to take a break or to have a break. Um, And I definitely feel that, you know, similar to what you just said, because we don't have that commute time or because we don't have that space in between, we're just taking on more work. And I talk really candidly about my mental health, especially on Instagram, um, because I don't think a lot of entrepreneurs and especially a lot of South Asian entrepreneurs do. Mm. And it's a very real challenge that we've all mm -hmm. got. You know, we um, we all have mental health in the same way that we have physical health. And I think that's one of the challenges of lockdown for both um, employed and self-employed people is that we've had less of a differentiation between the workplace and home life. You know, the kitchen side is the office during the day and it's, um, it's where we're making dinner in the evening and there's no break through the commute or anything like that. Um, so, so that's been a very real challenge for many of us have seen. But one of the things that I explore in my book, actually, is the fact that you know, many people talk, uh, particularly the get-rich-quick schemes and um, those who are out there just to sell a, a glamorous lifestyle of business ownership, they give the impression that actually um, business ownership is easy, and it's really not. And what most business owners find is that they go from working for a jerk, i.e. the boss, to working for a maniac and somebody who does wake up at 7am and the first thing they do is check their emails and they go to bed at, let's say, 9, 10pm, again, checking their emails. So I've heard a saying that the best thing about being self-employed and being your own boss is that you can choose which 18 hours per day that you work. You know, being your own boss seemed like such a... How do I say this? Not that it's not exciting, but for me being my own boss, it's extremely exciting. What I'm trying to say is I just thought you'd have a lot more flexibility. And yet with this pandemic, with COVID, with what we're going to go on to talk about, you know, income and budgets and, and fees, it seems like I've never worked harder and I'm always on because you are hustling and you are ultimately the reason that you get paid. Right. It's not like you have a salary coming in. It's not like you have a regular um, yes. income in the same way that you would have when you were nine to five. Inc. Uh, yes and no. So I, I would need to unpick that in a few ways, Sonia. So I think mm. you're absolutely right. Certainly in the early days, it becomes yeah. There, there's a sudden crash to reality where you go from the comfort of limited hours and a salary and so on to the big unknown where you're working longer hours than ever you've got people actively competing with you um, for your income and for your customer base and some of them will be working below minimum wage you've got no guarantee that even if you agree a good fee that you're going to get paid at the end of it and it's all a bit of a minefield that, that's very true in the early days um I, I probably should share a little bit about my story actually um 
because I can then talk about the later stages where it does change along the way. Mm-hmm. So um, and my story is that I, I had no intention of being self-employed when I was younger. It wasn't something that I had set out to do. Um, you know, there certainly wasn't Instagram there telling me that I had to be this entrepreneur taking pictures with a Lamborghini or a private jet. There weren't get-rich-quick gurus trying to sell me subscriptions on Facebook for £97 a month. You know, that stuff wasn't around. Um, Instead, I I actually left school at the age of 15, started an apprenticeship in hairdressing, and then fell into accountancy. But I had the option to buy into my firm and then perform a management buyout. And then I scaled it from a very small team to a team of about 60 and built it to a multi-million turnover, retired from that business in 2019, and um, have since had the luxury of um, you know, doing speaking, writing columns, books, and so on, and just, I guess, enjoying the, the time that I've had. And so, so I've seen all stages of this, and I think that in, in the very early stages, we need to differentiate self-employment from business ownership, from entrepreneurship, because they're three different concepts. And self-employment is where you as an individual are responsible for your own income. And you might have a team around you and you might have multiple customers, but if you got run over by a bus, then your business's income, your income is at risk. Um, Business ownership is kind of a step on from that where the business works for itself. So you could um, go away for three months. And in theory, the business would carry on running, it would carry on attracting new customers, it would carry on servicing the customers, providing products, whatever it is you do, um, without your input necessarily. Um, And then there's a split between entrepreneurialism, which is rinsing and repeating, doing it over and over again, um, usually, usually utilizing other resources, be that um, people or be it money, um, using other people's resources to expand it bigger, better, and faster, or investment, which is probably more of a route that I've gone down, where you move from being a director of a business that's not involved operationally to more of a um, a shareholder role, and perhaps you take a non-exec role, but you don't actually make any decisions or have any influence in the business. Um, so it does get easier. There is light at the end of a tunnel. However, COVID has um, probably thrown us all back a few steps as well, I would imagine. Thank you so much for those definitions and for clarifying that. I think what I what I must say is for those who are listening, I'm definitely at the beginning of my stage, right? I've kind of just hit one year. Well, November would be my one year anniversary of thinking of going self-employed and starting my business. So I'm definitely at the beginning. And I think maybe that's why it's a little bit fun, exciting, but at the same time, extremely daunting. And, you know, even talking about income, yeah, if if I was to go tomorrow, my income would go with me. So it's very dependent on myself, my personal brand and and the business or the initiatives that I'm currently facilitating. Do you have any tips, I guess, for first-time founders or those who are self-employed before we start really digging into your own story? Yeah, sure. So um, I guess the first tip is buy my book. Um, <laughs> um, of course, I was going to say that, Sonia, wasn't I? But um, I, think, I think the first thing is to really understand the difference between self-employment, business ownership, and 
to understand that there is a path and that there is a light at the end of the tunnel, perhaps more importantly, because it can get very disheartening. You know, when you start as a self-employed individual, you start out thinking that life is going to be great and you know, you, you lose all of the stuff that you didn't like in your job and you can choose who you work with and so on. And very quickly, that motivation wears off. And it's just like anything, you know, for example, if you sign up for a gym, when you first sign up for a gym, the perception of value is really high and it gets a little bit higher after you've done your induction, but then it generally drops down and most people quit either at three months or at nine months. They're the typical points in the, in the life cycle where the um, perception of value has just dropped down so far and they realize they're not using it. That perception of value curve applies to so many things, including business ownership, and you perceive that it's amazing. But as you get deeper and deeper into it and you find that you become a bit wounded by the wars of being in business and customers not paying you and um, being rejected time and time again and so on, it just chips away at you. So I guess then my second tip after reading the book, the second tip would be um, I talk in the book about the dream plan do review process. So this is where I've observed, um, having advised thousands of business owners in the time, this is where I've observed that they tend to go wrong. They either don't have a compelling enough dream um, that's compelling yet not too abstract to ensure that they get out of bed day after day and stay motivated. They then fail to plan. And I don't mean a plan as in a business plan or financial projections. I mean an operational plan of the steps they're going to take, what they're going to do, how they're going to do it, when they're going to do it by, and the dependencies. Um, the next one is do, which is taking action. And then finally, review. So looking back at what you've done, making sure that actually your dream was fit for purpose. It wasn't too out there, but it was sufficiently motivating. Your plan was robust and you actually follow through on it. You take and be action and then you review it and then you go back and it's a cyclical process. So that would be the second one. And then the third tip, I guess, is and we mentioned about acknowledging the difference between self-employment, business ownership, and um, investment entrepreneurship. So I took that model from a book called Rich Dad, Poor Dad by Robert Kiyosaki, which I read probably 15, maybe even 16, 17 years ago. And it was his cash flow quadrant, and it explained how you move through it. And to build a business, you need to um, scale what you do as an individual and scale it up so that other people can do it with systems, processes, procedures, and so on. Now, what I found is that through advising some bigger businesses, I've noticed the key elements that need to be in place to scale effectively. Um, so I've got my um, four pillars of scaling model, which is all then underpinned by the vision. And um, you know, just making sure that you've got those bits in place to take what, it, what could be a side hustle and actually grow it to where you might potentially want it to go. Yeah, a lot of that makes a lot of sense. And of course, you are always going to plug your book and that's completely fine because we are big advocates of, you know, entrepreneurs and, and founders and leaders and everyone who just is doing the most. Uh, I'd like I'd like to understand a little bit about, because this is in line with our Money Matters series that we're running through the LMF network, I guess, and you know, I'm kind of stumbling on my words here because I want to get it out correctly. But one of the big kind of premises of your book, and it says right in front, you know, control your time, your income and your life. If we just focus in on that income piece. Sure. 
I know for myself and I know for many entrepreneurs and founders during this time, it's been a struggle, especially from a monetary sense and a monetary gain. How do you or how did you get your money mindset into place? And now you are leading this fundamental business and you have a major global following and you have a book. But what are some of the challenges or some of the failures that you went through before you even got to this place of status? Because, you know, many founders and entrepreneurs or freelancers, they don't necessarily have a global following and they don't necessarily have a place of status. They just have this like real hustle mentality and the real fire inside that they want to go forward with. Sure. So I I don't necessarily subscribe to the view that um, your size of your business or um, anything along that sort of lines is correlated to money management. And um, actually, for me, money management doesn't even come down to whether you're in business or self-employed or even employed. I think that the principles of money management actually apply to us all, and they are the same principles. And um, for me, I think there's a few golden rules that I try to live by as best as possible, uh, which have um, helped to serve me and make sure that I've got the right comfort blanket. So the first one is, and I think it came from The Richest Man in Babylon, um, which is a great book by a gentleman called George Clayson. And it's just some simple rules. It's really hard to read the book. It's written in old English, but it's some simple rules of how to manage your own personal income. And one of the key ones was something along the lines of if you earn 10p a month more than you need, you're happy. If you earn 10p less a month than you need, you're unhappy. And that's a really basic principle, but you just need to make sure that your income exceeds your outgoings. That sounds really obvious, but it's the first step to um, both your personal circumstances and your business circumstances being in a place where you can make more intelligent and stable decisions rather than being driven by fear and emotion. So that's the, that's the first thing. The second thing is about having a comfort blanket. And I believe that most people should aim to have three months worth of expenses put aside in some way, shape or form. So not three months income, but three months um, minimum expenses. Now, some people recommend that for businesses as well. However, not many businesses in my experience actually do that. Not many of them sit on that amount of reserves. And you have to ask if they're sat on three months, should it be six months, six months, should it be 12 months? And then if it's 12 months, wouldn't that money be better invested in scaling up the business, in promotion, in recruiting new team members, in product development and so on? So um, I'm not necessarily a firm believer of that in business, but I certainly am personally. Um, so that's the second one. And I guess to give a little um, takeaway tip as well, a book called The Money Plan by a guy called Warren Shoot that I know, he talks about what's known as walkabout money. And this has transformed the way I do things. And it's really simple, Sonia. You won't believe it. It's just a case of transferring 150 quid onto a Revolut card per week as pocket money and not allowing myself to spend any more than that. And do you know what? Treating money as um as I would have done as a I don't know, 12 13 year old when I get a couple of pounds pocket money doing that and forcing myself to say no to myself for things um even though I could afford to spend more if I wanted to it actually really helps you focus on what's important and what you want to do with your money and it gives every pound a purpose 
Yeah, I'm just writing those tips down on my notes so that when I am spending or thinking of spending, they're right in front of me. I do, I do agree now listening to you that it's not necessarily your following up business that helps with financial management. And I guess that's one of the myths that we do want to debunk because it's not, hey, you have more money, so you're a better planner with money. Actually, sometimes it's you don't have enough money and so you become more um you become more kind of dedicated to saving and you become more uh, conscious of where you are spending. Mm. You know, this time last year I had a great salary in in the tech world. I had a corporate job. I had a lot of income coming in for someone my age. But I just spent it all and you know, I was happy but I wasn't um I wasn't really saving completely, and there's um, you know, there's individuals of all shapes and sizes that um, that, that spend more than they earn or the same amount. I mean, there was a um, I'm not sure if you heard about it, but in the news, and uh, without wanting to get into politics here, but Boris Johnson was complaining that his prime minister's salary wasn't enough um, because he had to have t- he had to take a pay cut from what he was earning at the Telegraph. So he was in a position where he actually had to cut back his lifestyle to become prime minister. And whilst that might seem really out there and inconceivable to some people, actually, you know, a good proportion of people live to their income. And if they go from, let's say, a £15,000 a year, you know, pretty much minimum wage job up to £150,000 a year, all they do is increase the value of their car from, let's say, I don't know, a, a I don't know, a £2,000 car to a £20,000 car, and they just multiply everything by 10. And they do it subconsciously because they feel that they deserve it. But but it leads to the same end position where there's, um, if they have a bad month, then there's more month than money. So these principles, I think, they apply um, regardless of what's coming in and regardless of whether you're a business owner or not. You know, some of the um, biggest and best business owners out there are dreadful with money personally. They just happen to have a really good finance director in their business. And conversely, some of the smallest businesses have people who are really quite shrewd and have um, put aside more than enough of their retirement. Yeah, all of these points really echo to me. When I was in university, I was lucky enough to be um the last year that's that was uh for whom it cost three grand a year and at the same time I was working part-time now if somebody told me hey Sonia you're working part-time pay off your student loan and and pay off your degree whilst you're there so you don't go into debt I would have done it because what I didn't realize is then when I started looking into mortgages well actually that loan comes into a debt which you then have to pay off um before you're allowed the full 100% of your mortgage amount Equally, you know, skills like negotiation, it's not something that you were taught. It's just something you had to learn. So I didn't even know in my first job that I could negotiate. And, you know, one of the reasons why there is a gender parity gap or there is an ethnicity um, parity gap when it comes to pay and when it comes to finances is because 
these basic skills of negotiation aren't really taught. So no one really says, hey, this is how you negotiate to get a 20% extra pay rise. If anything, I just took the first offer that came my way because I was scared they're going to take it away from me. Completely. And I think financial education is something that's sorely lacking both uh, within our academic system. Uh, you know, certainly at school, I, you know, I, I didn't have any personal finance education. I didn't have any business education, really. I did business studies, but um, it was at GCSE. I obviously left before the end of the course. Um, and business studies was all about the biggest of businesses. It wasn't about the practical reality to business, which is you buy something for a five and sell it for a tenner. Um, so it didn't, yeah, it didn't teach me about the, the basic fundamentals, which would have been really valuable rather than things like how to work out share prices and so on, which I've never used in my life. Um, so there's... There is a weakness in our education system on that, but also for adults as well. I think that there's there's a few um, cultural issues that we have as a as a society as a whole that lead people down down uh, what could be dangerous paths financially as well. So we have the culture of debt. I think that there's very much an expectation that if you buy a new sofa, you're going to get it on a higher purchase. Or if you buy a new car, you're going to get it on a lease. Um, it's very rare for people to buy these things cash. And you know, I, I actually agree at the moment that cars should be bought on a lease, but that's a completely different topic altogether. Um, but the cars we drive today probably won't be the cars we drive in five years' time. So why why hold that depreciating asset? Um, there's the culture that we really should buy our houses rather than rent. But actually, we need to look at our own individual circumstances, the time of move and so on. Um, and there's a real lack of understanding about provision for retirement as well. Um, we're generally, as a society, we're channeled into um, buy, buy a house, jump on the property ladder, hope for the best, um, retire and hope that you've saved enough in a pension. But there is another way of doing it through business ownership. Yeah, see, I'm just learning so much. Can I ask why do you think that we should lease cars? Because, and I guess it comes back down to cultural upbringing or even the conversations I'm having at the moment. If I was to lease a car, then is it not losing its value? And then at the end of the term, I either have to give it back and pay off extra miles or have to buy it out. And lastly, if I'm then going to buy a property or going to ask for a loan, that comes in as debt. So that's the difference between a, um, and I'm, I'm no personal finance expert. However, my understanding mm -hmm. is that a lease is different from a um, personal contract purchase, which is different from a HP. So the HP and the personal contract purchase absolutely are debt. The lease is an outgoing, so it will get considered as an outgoing, but it's not a debt. It's not a liability on your personal balance sheet. Um, the reason why I believe that people, if they're looking to buy a car right now, should consider, and it's not necessarily a lease, they might want to consider a PCP or a HP, but it's for the handback provision. So there's a provision, and this is getting quite technical, but there's a provision in these um, finance agreements that provided you've paid 50% of a liability, you can hand back at any time. And given the developments and the innovations that are going on with vehicles at the moment, and the legislative changes as well that are happening rapidly. Um, certain types of vehicles are devaluing rapidly. Um, for example, in London, the ULES zone as um, my last car, and it wasn't a very old car, it was a 
2016 plate, I believe, maybe a little bit older, um, I would have had to have paid £40 per day to go into London. And that wasn't part mm. of the deal when I bought it. And that wouldn't, you know, the value of that car would have dropped massively the moment that that happened. Um, mm-hmm. with, the, um, with the updates in technology in cars, um, I've not got a particularly expensive car. You know, I, um, I'm, I'm really not a petrol head. I, I would love to be Sonia. I think cars, they look amazing, but I just don't get them. So I just drive a really boring car. Um, but I've got an app where the car can park itself. Um, so it's got the self-driving stuff in it. Um, it's just not legally allowed to be used yet. So that, and that's why I mentioned about people should consider all of these um, options and not necessarily go where society tells them to go, but also not necessarily pay cash. Um, and there's a number of things like that where we have, um, as a society, we have preconceived ideas of what we should do and how we should do it. But actually, we need to look at each case on its own merit. So, for example, buying a house at the moment, um, unless you're planning to be in your property for 10 years upwards, it's possibly, depending where you live and what the rental market's like, it's possibly not worth buying. It might be worth getting a long Mm. leasehold um, because the cost of change is significant with stamp duties and so on and so forth. Um, Plus the inflation generally isn't there as it was before. Um, But yeah, unfortunately with this stuff, there's no one size fits all. Um, I Mm. I guess it's a case of just question everything you've been told, which, which doesn't help anyone given that the education isn't there in the first place. Yeah, most definitely. And I'm just reading the pages that are available as a preview on Google when it comes to your book. And on your dedicated section, it says that you've dedicated to the next generation, so your kids and their classmates. But it also says that you have, am I correct to say, a a child that's 21 years old? I do, yes. I started really early, Sonia. Um, (laughs) Yeah, I I started really early. um, My question being, Mm. sorry. Oh, no. My question being, what are some kind of finance tips and some money management tips that you give to your your son who's 21 and your kids who are still in school that you wish you were given when you were younger? Sure. So I think the for me, the biggest thing was that growing up, like I had a really normal upbringing, I guess you could say. So um, council state lad, I, we really didn't have much cash floating around. And one of the problems that we had as a family was that that defined us. So I would hear things like money doesn't grow on trees or stocks and shares aren't for people like us. And it became almost a paradigm that I lived by. And it was um, a self-fulfilling limitation, really. So I think what, what, what I've tried to do with, um, with my kids in particular is first of all to let them find their own path. So my son Jordan, for example, is 21 and he is probably the so he he's similar to me in a way, but he's also the polar opposite. Um so I'm a I'm a bit of a spender, you know, I like designer labels. And I I just enjoy having some of the stuff that I couldn't have when I was younger. Um he on the other hand is far more financially prudent and you know wouldn't consider going into debt and so on. So for him, it's very different to, for example, my stepdaughter, Daisy, who's already got expensive tastes. Um, so it, it's different based on all of them. But what, what I've always tried to do is 
to help them understand the value of money, but more importantly, for them to understand the value of themselves as well. Um, one of the traps that often I find people fall into is that they don't value themselves and their own time. So, for example, you could have somebody who's a, let, let's say they're an employed professional and they're earning, uh, I don't know, £40,000 per year, £20, uh, yeah, £20 per hour, roughly, Um so they're earning a good rate, but they're doing the lawn mowing themselves rather than paying someone £10 an hour to do it. And they don't value their own time in the way that their employer does, or um, even worse, that their clients do. So the clients of the employer, who's possibly charging them out at maybe £120 per hour. And there's that lack of belief in who they are, what they do, and so on. And another way that this permeates this lack of value is people who spend a disproportionate amount of time to save a few pence, or perhaps um, you know, a, a great example is in London. Um, if ever we we go for you know, a, a bit of time in Knightsbridge, I absolutely love Harrods. Um, do we go to Starbucks for coffee and pay four pounds, but have to drink it outside and get freezing cold, or do we go to Hotel, Hotel Bulgari round the corner, pay six pounds? but actually have a really nice, relaxed coffee and enjoy it. So I, I've tried to help them understand the value of themselves as well as the value of money, because when you don't value yourself, you can never truly value money. That's such a great statement to make. And I am extremely grateful that you've brought in such real examples. I know the people that be listening to this, regardless of their situation, will be able to relate in some shape or form. I also come from a council estate. I also had a normal upbringing, but that upbringing didn't really involve financial education or any kind of literacy. Mm. And, you know, I just saw my parents hustle. I saw my dad hustle. And then I saw my mum be the financial controller and hold down the budgets and make sure that they were divvied up in the way that they should be. But ultimately, culturally, my dad made the final decisions, as is the truth in most South Asian families. Yeah. So, well, no, 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 no. Sorry. I'm, I think it's just because I'm speaking slowly because I'm um, being nostalgic at the same time. No but, <laughs> but it's more around the lines of, you know, when I grew up, I didn't necessarily even know how much money I could make. I just knew that I had to make money. But what you do with that money when you're younger is very... Um, it's very like materialistic and it's very kind of shallow. It's like, okay, I'm going to make money so I can wear designer clothes and I can have brands and I'm going to make money because the only way that, you know, we as a demographic or we as a, as a, a as a selection of people invest is through property. So, you know, when I was younger, it was like, you ha well, how come you don't have a property yet? Why don't you have money and property? And you don't even, or they don't even realize there's so many other avenues of investment, not just property being the one and the only. Oh, completely. I um, So I, I made the mistake, and I, I would say it's a mistake because I'm not a property guy, uh, but I made the mistake of owning my own home, but also being a landlord. And put it this way, I much prefer being a tenant. I really do. And that might sound like madness, but you would not believe the um the stress uh winter when it starts getting cold and you know that it might not just be your own boiler that breaks but your tenants boilers as well and yeah that that kind of um 
that that kind of risk. So I, I'm not a bricks and mortar person in terms of I can't get my hands dirty and do that stuff myself. So instead, my I guess my asset base is in the stuff that I can influence and I can build, i.e. my own businesses. So, um, but yeah, there's, there's a load of stuff that we're preconditioned with. But an, another great book that I've read is The Millionaire Mindset or S- Secrets of a Millionaire Mind, I think it was called actually, uh, by T. Harv Eker. And this book talks about the financial thermostat. And the reality is that we've all got a financial thermostat, which basically when we have a bit more money or when we're having a really tough month or tough year, we always end up reverting back to the thermostat. So much in the same way that at home, we might have our thermostat on 21 degrees. And if it gets a bit colder, then it will heat up and bring us up. If we're lucky enough to to have air con and it's 30 degrees, it will bring it down to 21. And finances are like that for most people as well. So the trick is not about trying just to focus on getting more in. The trick is actually to focus on gradually increasing that thermostat. And that's where valuing yourself and, for example, you know, having the coffee in the hotel lobby rather than Starbucks or rather than, I don't know, buying a T-shirt at H&M, deciding that you want to go to a different shop and, uh, you know, maybe All Saints or Lisa or whatever. Um, by, by making those small, subtle changes, it's about changing your um, your fundamental values around yourself. And when you change those fundamental values around yourself, if you can combine that with being in a place of comfort, so you've got sufficient financial provision should you not have a month's worth of income come in, um, that you know that things are going to be okay, you then are making decisions based on logic rather than emotion. You're, you're not a scattergun trying to get whatever you can. Um, you're, you're doing things logically. You also value yourself. And it's a really great place to be in. I'm just taking so much away. And I think I just need to unpack so much of what you're saying, And I, as I'm sure uh, do, do our listeners. Um, we, we're heading to the end of the segment, though I really don't want to. So I'll probably ask you to come back on at some point. Do you have any final words of wisdom, any tips and tricks for, I guess, for two different demographics? One being those younger generations, so similar to your kids who are starting their life and their journey. And the second being those who are starting their journey into self-employment and ultimately wanting to be their own boss. Sure. So I'm going to start with the second one, if that's okay. Um, So if I start with those who are starting their journey into self-employment, and in fact, I'm going to extend this to everybody in the workplace, I think it's really important to remember that you are your own boss. Uh, Whether you've got an employer, whether you're self-employed, whether you're a business owner, you are your own boss. And you can decide every day what you do day to day. So you know, one of the things that I really didn't understand and appreciate until recently is that every day we make hundreds, if not thousands, of micro decisions. So, for example, we wake up in the morning and we actively decide not to jump on a plane, obviously pre-COVID. Um, we actively decide not to jump on a plane and go to some random country. We actively decide not to spend every last penny in our bank account and max out our credit cards. Yeah, we make those decisions without even thinking about them. They're not conscious decisions, 
they're subconscious decisions. Uh, we decide what we do. We decide that we're going to um, go to work at nine o'clock or we decide that we're going to check our emails. All of these things are decisions that we take and decisions that we don't take along the way. So I think that remembering that you are your own boss and that you are in control of those decisions and taking control of them is the biggest tip that I can give to anyone, whether they want to be their own boss in so far as self-employment or entrepreneurship, or whether they just want to um, be their own boss in life. Um, so that's the first thing. And then when it comes to the next generation, I think that we're going to have a, a very, or or they are going to have a very different world compared to, um, you know, what we had. You know, so I'm a, I'm an early millennial. Um, millennials are having a different world to baby boomers and previous generations. You know, we we certainly can't buy a house for £10,000 and expect it to go to £500,000. It doesn't work like that. Um, we're missing out on some of the things that they had, but we've also got our own opportunities. Um, you know, the early millennials had the, um, the first rise of the internet and so on, so there was a lot of stuff there. And the next generations coming through will have their own opportunities and their own risks as well. So I think that it's about understanding the fundamentals that last um, a lifetime. You know, the stuff like the richest man in Babylon lessons of earn 10p more than you spend rather than 10p less is vital regardless of what generation you are. So you need to know those fundamentals and live by them, but also be prepared to turn your back on parents' advice, grandparents' advice, and actually do what's prudent and what's right for you rather than what the expectation is. And it's a case of looking at each situation and making sure that you are deciding logically rather than emotionally as much as possible. Um, we would all love to go into a Mercedes dealership and put down 30 grand cash and drive out the car brand new, but is that the best way of buying it? We would all love to own our own house and call it our castle, but is that the best way to live over the next five years? Um, you need to weigh up all the pros and cons, disregard societal norms, and do what's right for you, your circumstances, and where you see things going. Wow, thank you so much. I genuinely think you're just full of so much wisdom. Um, I know you spoke about your book earlier, but for those who would like to know more about your book, where they can find it, how they can buy it, and most importantly, how they can follow you, do you sure. mind giving us a little marketing spiel? Yeah, no problem. So I'm on pretty much all social media platforms as at Carl Reader. I'm fairly easily found. If you pop my name into Google, you'll find me as well. And the book, there's a um, shortened link, which is HTTP colon forward slash forward slash Carl, C-A-R-L dot two T-O forward slash book. Um, so that's just a shortened version, which takes ages to say, but Carl dot two forward slash book. Um, and then that's a direct link for the book. Thank you so much for joining. Thank you so much for sharing your story. And I can't wait to see how your advice really does impact um, those who get involved and how you yourself kind of grow into this next phase of your business and entrepreneurial journey. Thank you, Sonia. Thank you so much for the invite. Thank you for listening to Strategically Winging It. I'm your host, Sonia Barlow, and this is an LMF Network business podcast. If you like what you've heard, please do share online and give us a thumbs up or a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. And we encourage you to connect with us across social media at LMF Network. We are always looking for guests to come on as speakers 
And now with our new book being launched in October 2021, we're looking for entrepreneurs to interview as case studies. If you're interested, drop us an email. Our email address is hello at lmfnetwork.com and you can get in touch with me directly at Sonia Barlow UK.